Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Ladies and gentlemen, folks of all shapes, creeds, colors, and sizes, I welcome you back to this Season 13 Finale Special. And like we tend to do at the end of each season, we're closing this one out with a bit of a bang. I've assembled for you nearly two dozen listener-submitted legends from all corners of this North American continent. Tales of tragedy, vengeance, fear, so much more. Because tonight, we celebrate with a very special episode. I present to you, your Season 13 Finale, Hometown Legends number 13. Now before we make our way to the highway, a quick reminder that hometown legends tend to stem from tragic and triggering events. As a result, this entire episode has a trigger warning. Discussion of child and animal abuse, violence, suicide, and a plethora of other unsettling details lie ahead. Now I'll try my best to give a little heads up, but consider this your blanket warning. Now, to kick this little adventure off, we begin below. Six feet to be specific. Please welcome Sierra from Arizona to the program. Hi, Derek. This is Sierra from Arizona again. This is for the Hometown Legends segment. I am referencing... Season 10, Episode 7 of Hometown Legends, where someone spoke about a cemetery underneath a park where there were several hundred bodies buried. Today I'm going to talk about the Dunbar Springs neighborhood in Tucson, Arizona, where thousands of bodies are potentially buried. The Dunbar Springs neighborhood was originally a cemetery between 1875 and 1909, And about 8,900 people were buried there at one point in time. Since then, the cemetery was moved in 1909. And it is estimated by many archaeologists that about half of the bodies are still buried there. They just could not figure out how to move them. There's a very beautiful, eclectic neighborhood now on top of where all these bodies are. It's amazing that we've driven through it. It's, It's very nice. And there are signs actually commemorating the cemetery that was once there. In the 30s, someone digging a swimming pool in their backyard actually found a Civil War soldier that was buried in the new Tucson Cemetery. 
so supposedly this area is very, very haunted. And like I said, there are still thousands of bodies buried beneath it and very few people know about it. So yeah, that's my hometown legend. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sierra. Now I'm sure you recall Cheeseman Park, the Denver area park that was built over a cemetery where over 2,000 souls still remain entombed. Well, it sounds like Dunbar Springs just might be guilty of the very same sin. And I briefly mentioned this story to our editor on Shadows in the Desert, Matt Van Hosen, as he's a Tucson native. I didn't mention any details, I simply just said I had a story for him, and I sent him a gif from the movie Poltergeist of the mother of the family struggling in the pool. Oddly enough, he knew exactly what I was talking about. But I'm curious if those that live just above these bodies are aware of what's below. But you know, at a certain point, it's going to be hard to avoid the dead, as cultures in other parts of our globe have already experienced. We get new dead folk every day, but not a lot of new land. So these bodies need to go somewhere. And that's what makes discovering a body while digging a swimming pool that much more cliché. We've all seen devices like that used in television and movies. But believe it or not, it happens more often than you would think. This time, in Jacksonville, Florida. Now here is one of those trigger warnings I was mentioning. Violence against women and murder. This is not the small child Mary Bear originally introduced us to in the weeks after Bonnie Hames' murder. He was adopted, and today a grown Aaron Frazier testified about discovering his own mother's remains. He took possession of the home around 2003 and leased it to renters. Then he was planning to sell the home in 2014 and was removing the pool and an external shower. Here in the dirt, underneath the shower, he finds a bag. I accidentally busted up the bag and I saw what I describe as like something that looked like coconut. Um, it was a fibrous material, just like a, like a brown coconut. The coconut was in fact the skull of his biological mother. I picked up the coconut object and it ended up being the, the top portion of her skull. Um, I looked at it, we, I, hand, I had it in my hand. Um, I didn't really see anything, I handed it to Thad. And he looked back in the hole, and we could see teeth. And that, at that point in time, you could, you could see the top portion of her eye sockets. Frazier fought back tears as he described this most difficult part of the search for justice in his mother's death. Now, originally, I was just in search of another example of a pool dig gone bad. But I found this story and thought it was too unsettling not to use as the example. Now, little did I know, after a little more digging, I soon revealed that this case may also be paranormal in nature. And after all of this, this case turned to somewhat of a supernatural bent when defense lawyers were in questioning the woman who rented the house and signed an agreement to not allow the dog to tear up the backyard or to ever dig up the backyard. They were asking her about claims that there were ghosts in the house, things like candles that would light themselves, mattresses that would all of a sudden turn bloody, then all of a sudden 
not be bloody. They even brought up the fact that investigators with police at the time brought in psychics to try and help crack this case. Now, as weird as that is, wait until you hear what one renter of the property experienced when he rented the place over 20 years ago. Joey Jenrette says that he rented Michael Hames' home for about two years in the late 90s. And from the moment he moved in, he says his dog, Bandit, started acting strangely. He was constantly barking and circling around the pool and scratching certain areas around that pool deck and a shed in the backyard. When we lived there, every time Bandit would go out, he would circle the pool. He would just keep running the, running the laps around the pool. And in certain areas, he would just stop and just look at the ground and he would bark. So, I mean, that kind of right there kind of threw up red flags on me. Jen Rett says he never had any reservations about moving into the home, but after talking with several of his new neighbors on Dolphin Avenue, he admits he grew suspicious of his landlord, Michael Haim. The 36-year-old tells News for Jax he only met Haim twice and describes him as odd and shady. When Jen Rett learned about Sunday's discovery on the property, he says his stomach jumped up in his throat and immediately thought back to all of the bizarre incidents with his dog bandit. What does your gut tell you happened in that house? Uh, I believe she was killed there and I believe she was buried there. It's chilling stuff. Now those clips courtesy of WJXT, Channel 4 News out of Jacksonville. And for those of you wondering, Bonnie's husband was found guilty of her murder. Several years ago, in fact. And he lost his appeal about a year ago as well. He's currently serving a life sentence. And this is just one example of a backyard dig uncovering dark secrets. And something tells me there will be more. Thank you again, Sierra, for kicking us off this evening. Now, if you have a story you would like to hear featured on the show... Give the hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or shoot me an email at monstersamonguspodcast at gmail.com. And for those of you asking, you can submit Hometown Legends at any time. Just use the phrase Hometown Legends very early in the call, and my fancy little program on my computer will pluck it from the ether. Calls that didn't make it to air on this special episode will be pushed and used on the next one. So keep calling them in, folks. Oh, and don't forget to get those transportation calls in as well for the season 14 premiere. Terrifying tales of transportation. Or something like that. Again, say transportation early on in the call so that I don't miss it. Now then. Enough from me. Let's hear from Louise, from south of the border. Hey, Derek, this is Louise again. Hey, uh, I have a story for your hometown legends if you want to use it. So, where my wife is from, it's a city called Casa Grandes, Chihuahua, in Mexico. So, there's a story a legend about a lady, they call it La Segua, driving around on like a long stretch of road where there's a, there's a big curve. There's people that say that they see this lady, long hair and her foot is always on top of a briefcase and she's always looking down to the side. And then if you see her, 
and if you look at her face, her face is stretched like a horse, like elongated. I don't know. It's like just stretched like a horse, like ugly, you know, and she's known to go after scare like mainly males. Because my mother-in-law saw her one night, late at night, driving home. And there's a bunch of other people that I guess have seen her before. And there's actually, uh, if you look, you spell it La, L-A-C-E-G-U-A, La Segua Legend. And it'll show you uh, pictures of how she looks like or whatever. So a lot of sightings on that side of town, I guess. Very dark, kind of like on the outskirts of Casas Grandes. And uh, apparently she's really ugly, so... That's one of the hometown legends from around the area. Hope you can use it, man. Thanks. Thanks, Luis. No, I've seen renditions of this entity, but I'm not sure that I ever knew her name. You know, I'm reminded of the Welsh Christmas custom of Mary Lloyd. But instead of songs and candies, La Segua is the bringer of death and doom. They both, however, have that same long horse face. To learn more in that European custom, check out the show notes. And as for the La Segua legend, I also can't help but notice the similarities with La Llorona. Maybe she's the road-faring version, free of La Llorona's watery confinements. But regardless, the concept is terrifying, and we thank you, Luis, for introducing it to us. And I hope you don't mind saying, but sounds like that would make a dope Halloween costume. If you happen to have a horse skull lying around. Attention shoppers. You only have a few days left to take advantage of our Dogman Days of Summer sale. Everything in our shop is currently on sale. The sale ends August 8th. Coincidentally, that's the same day that our shop closes for a few weeks. For our between-season hiatus. But fear not. It will reopen, restocked, and fully priced on or around September 15th when we come back for season 14. So don't miss out. Visit MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com and click that shop tab. Now would you like to hear four words that somehow manage to rattle your soul? Haunted meatpacking plant. Please welcome Emma from the state of Georgia to the program. Hey Derek, this is Emma calling from Southern Appalachia, about 3,600 feet up. This one is based in Statesboro, Georgia. I spent a good chunk of my teenage years there and early college years, and I lived about a half a mile down the road from what's called the packing house. Now this is a meat packing plant that opened in 1917 and even in you know 2007 it was still standing you know an apparent brick and concrete building about four stories tall and it was totally abandoned it was abandoned fairly soon after it opened actually there was a fire and it shut down and then with like the 29 crash the man Brooks Simmons was I believe the man who was in possession of this building. So the history and the lore, uh, you know, get tangled up. But when I was in high school, the story was, or as the legend goes, that the man who owned the building lost his mind or became very depressed. There was, you know, many stories. It's a hundred years later almost. And 
children love to add to tales. However, the story was that for whatever reason, a bunch of his employees and their families lived as tenants in the building, in the packing plant itself, and he locked them in after starting a fire and everybody burned to death. So, you know, growing up a half mile down the road from this, I would frequently walk there with friends. It was actually a pretty common place for people to party. It's next to a little trailer park, and there's a man who, like, will chase you off every now and then. But most of the times when we went, it was empty, and we only went during the day. But there was, you know, old mattresses, lots of garbage, definitely evidence that people and travelers had been, like, squatting and camping there, and definitely evidence of, like, alcohol and drug abuse going on in there. bunch of glass, but also lots of really interesting spray paint on the walls and little altars here and there. But the freaky thing about it was the building itself seems very sound. In fact, the floors are really huge and the ceilings are very high. But in the like four corners of this building, as you went up to the second and third and fourth stories, there's entire rooms just filled with rubble and ash from what I'm assuming was the fire. Now, I don't know how they would have shoved everything into these corners because like the the ash and the rubble in some of the rooms is five to ten feet high and you can't distinguish anything but there is some really old weird stuff scattered about the floors such as like old babies cribs rocking chairs lots of just strange antiques and you know then again also like garbage modern beds and things things like that, but uh, you get a really weird vibe as you go up to the the higher levels. Now, I'm not sure if anybody actually did die inside of it, but this would also be a great place to, like, hide a body, you know, if you were crazy enough to drag one to the second story and dig a hole, like, no one would ever go looking in the packing house. I've made it to the roof before. This was a long time ago. I wouldn't recommend anybody go in there anymore because, like, even at that time, Getting to the fourth story was really dangerous. There was just a, a really shitty old ladder that wouldn't hold much weight. I barely weigh 100 pounds, and it was, like, bowing underneath me. And you just get a really weird vibe up there as well. Like, I've taken some Ouija boards with friends now and then, and the things claimed to be children that would talk to us, but it was not in the daytime, there wasn't really a lot of the same sense of spook. It more felt like an urban, you know, exploration. And anyway, I told this story to a friend the other day, and they seemed to think someone had bought the place recently, and they were going to start, like, filming movies there. I was under the assumption at one point someone was going to turn it into apartments, because apparently it's really structurally sound. But, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen to it anymore. It was a really terrifying place to grow up near and you definitely get some dark vibes. So, yeah, there's a big metal chute in the building. You know, it looks like it's made of steel or iron of some kind, but people have said people have thrown themselves down it before. There's a lot of, like, dark energy there. I was, like, looking it up a little bit earlier before this call as well, and the myth exactly is that the owner chained everybody inside and blocked the exits, which wasn't hard. There wasn't many, and there were no fire escapes. So apparently they say 23 employees burned to death inside, and the owner, like, committed suicide. But, again, I I don't think that necessarily adds up, like, from the research I've done, but... 
some people have claimed to see shadows or people through the windows. People claim you can even hear, like, screams at night, like if there's a full moon of, like, the people burning inside. Yeah, the windows were really huge, so, I mean, you could stand inside of it on one end and have a huge view and no one could really see you, so there's definitely a lot of people who would camp out in there, which also gives it kind of a, an, a strange vibe because, you know, every time we'd go visit, we'd always wonder, well, is someone else in here? And maybe that would account for the strange feeling of, like, being watched or there being a sense of danger, you know, for, like, on someone's, what they consider their turf. But, yeah, I mean, it's a really fantastic place and a very common place for the teenagers to go in Statesboro and interesting fact about Statesboro is that like um, if you're from the south you might be familiar with General Sherman's march to the south where he basically set everything on fire except for Savannah because he thought it was so beautiful and except for Statesboro because he got there and asked where it was and they were like this is it (laughs) there was really nothing to burn so it's that small of a town my high school maybe had 2,000 people in it and those that spanned like the, you know, podunk towns outside of us. So anyway, Statesboro is a kind of a weird place. Like even the house I grew up in uh, used to just be my house, my friend's house, two two rows down, and just fields. So there was a lot of spooky energy there. You know, a lot of ghosts, especially when it comes to the Confederate South and the antebellum South. So anyway, hope you can use that. <laughs> You can Google it, look it all up. There's some pretty cool pictures as well of the packing plant from the past and the present. So, have a good day. Thanks, Emma. Now, this will not be the last abandoned building we virtually explored this evening. But I feel obligated to remind all of you that trespassing is a terrible idea. Exploring old, decrepit, defunct, and decomposing buildings is not a good idea. All law-breaking aside, as we will quickly learn in this next entry from Jim in Illinois, doing so can be downright deadly. Hi, Derek. This is Jim from Freeport, Illinois. I'm calling in response to Season 10, Episode 11, uh, about the specter in the window at Key Mill, K-E-A. Well, that town is Marietta, California. I grew up in that town. And when I was a kid back in the 80s, we explored that building quite often, and you were able to get to the top of the building through a series of ladders and then to a rickety old staircase that led you all the way to the top. Now, the caller that first called this in mentioned that it was three stories high. Well, that's not quite right. The building is 70 feet tall, and when you reach the top, there are three shafts that go down into the grain elevators and there are ladders that lead all the way down and we used to climb down into them. Well, during our time exploring this place, we never encountered anything, you know, supernatural. But in 1987, a group of friends of mine and myself, we went up there and one of my friends had never been there. And we told him, let one of our other friends go down first you know, down the ladder, because we would climb all the way to the bottom. And he insisted on going first, and he fell approximately 60 feet inside this grain elevator and was severely injured. Well, he survived it, took a rescue team with uh, repelling gear to get him out of there, 
he had numerous broken bones, but he did manage to survive, and, and he's okay to this day. Now, across the field, the caller had mentioned a, a dilapidated or burned-out building. Well, that used to be the original school in Murrieta, and back in those days, there was an old man that lived there, and he had kind of a perpetual yard sale going on. Well, one day, one of my friends was exploring through his little area while he was not there, and he found some notebooks and some artwork that this guy had drawn. Well, here's the creep factor that we did experience. One of the drawings was a perspective looking from that school at the mill, and it was a pretty detailed drawing, but in the drawing there were children playing down on the ground at the base of the building. And in that window where this caller mentioned seeing a, a specter was a demon-like figure looking down on the children in this man's drawing. That creeped us out. That creeped us out quite a bit. But today, the legend that goes around is that there is a girl in a blue dress seen in that window. There's tons of videos on YouTube and exploration videos and whatnot and a lot of other legends and stories. But like I said, we really didn't experience anything but pigeons. One time, a nest of owls and the little baby owls screeched at us and scared us pretty good. But that's about it. I really, really like your podcast. Keep up the good work, Derek. Appreciate it. And hope you do well. And good night. Thanks, Jim, for the story and for the warning. I told you guys it was dangerous. I actually lost a friend in high school that died when the oil storage tanks that they were exploring near our local haunt exploded. It was always believed it was sparked by a lit cigarette. So let that be your warning. Don't go getting yourself in trouble. And whatever you do, don't blame me. Now, I've included links to both these locations in the show notes if you'd like to check them out. And it's sad for folklore, but great for the workers. But there doesn't seem to be any truth to the mass murder portion of Emma's story. Only the tragic end to a businessman and skeletons of buildings from another age. Thanks again, Jem and Emma, for sharing your entries. Now, folks, I'd like to take a quick minute to talk to you about the benefits of microdosing and how all sorts of people, myself included, are microdosing to chill out, manage pain, improve their mood, improve their sleep, and much more. Microdosing has been huge for me in helping me manage my anxiety and insomnia, and it helps me fall asleep more easily. Gone are those nights when I simply can't stop thinking about mistakes I've made on the show. Now, before you tense up about three little letters, keep in mind that microdose gummies by tonight's sponsor, Lumi Labs, are completely legal everywhere in the United States. And yes, these gummies do contain cannabinoids, but I'm not talking about getting high in that stereotypical sense. I'm talking about entry-level doses of THC and CBD to help you relax and feel good. Microdose gummies are infused with Oregon-grown berries, so not only do they make you feel great, but they taste great too. So what are you waiting for? Give them a try today. Lumi Labs is offering an awesome deal for your first order. Microdose is available nationwide. And to learn more about microdosing THC, just do a quick search online or go to microdose.com 
and use the code MONSTERSAMONGUS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show notes. But again, that's microdose.com and code MONSTERSAMONGUS. As always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. Now back to those terrifying hometown tales. Now this next entry comes from the state that I was raised in, and even closer to my wife's hometown. So please welcome Zach to the program. Hey Derek, my name's Zach. Uh, I live in Northeast Ohio, your old stomping ground. This is one for the Hometown Legends episode. Around here, in a place called Auburn Township, there is a hometown legend for something called the Melon Head. As the story goes, there was a man named Dr. Crow, and I've heard various versions of it, sometimes it's also his wife, who treated children with a disease that made their heads large. I'm aware of something called a hydrocell, because my cousin had it, that uh, can have that effect. However, as the story goes, Dr. Crow had all these kids at his house to treat them. And one night, a fire broke out. Some say that the melon heads set it. Some say that Dr. Crow was drunk and knocked over a candle. But in the fire, all of the melon heads got out. Some say that his wife let them out. Some say that they escaped. Some say that they started the fire to kill Dr. Crow because he was a cruel and wicked man. Don't think there's any truth to it. I know there's a website. I know it's in the Weird Ohio book. But, uh, yeah, that's our hometown legends. Uh, my dad used to tell it way better and scared the bejesus out of me when I was a kid with it. But uh, I think it's pretty cool. Thanks for what you do, and take care. Have a good evening. Melonheads. Thanks for the call, Zach. You know, early on in this program's existence, I'm pretty sure I associated the nearby and infamous Helltown with these bulbous-headed beings. But as it turns out, the two stories are actually unrelated and found probably some 25 miles apart. But did you know that the Melonhead legends persist in other parts of the country as well? In Michigan where they're said to be found around the Felt Mansion, just outside of Saugatuck. They're sometimes referred to as Wobbleheads. Or in southwest Connecticut, where the Melonheads, like the previous two versions, escaped from some sort of facility, living feral in the forest, around local nightmare destination, Dracula Drive. And there are probably other incarnations of this legend. I just haven't heard of them yet. And if you happen to have one in your area, please let us know about it. And I suppose if you find yourself walking in the woods outside of Cleveland, Saugatuck, or southwest Connecticut, I suggest you mind the rustling and murmured voices from just beyond the tree line. For God's sake, beware the melonheads. Thanks again, Zach. Maybe I'll check out that area next time I'm in Cleveland. If so, I'll report back. Now, folks, I'm doing my best to stay on track here, but we have a lot to get through. So let's march forward with Wendy's entry out of the state of Oklahoma. Hi, my name is Wendy Ponka, and I live on the Osage Nation Reservation, eight miles west of a little town called Fairfax, Oklahoma. 
And I'm calling in about the hometown legend segment of your show. And by the way, thank you so much for your show. I just love it. I listen to it all the time, and it makes me not feel like I've had so many wild experiences. I feel better. Thank you. Anyway, I want to talk about a creek in Osage. It's called Doggett Creek. I'm not sure exactly what the translation is. I think it may mean Victory Creek in our language, but my dad and friends of mine that live near this creek, and it's where I live near too, uh, we have a lot of stories about it. This could be actually thousands of years ago. Our warriors, while camping there, and we would camp there a lot on summer hunts, our tribe, the warriors killed a, the last monster, is what my dad told me, and he wasn't sure what that meant, what kind of a monster it was, but that's their whole history about Doggy Creek. And there's been many sightings there of different cryptid animals through the years and UFO sightings. So there's a road that passes over Doggy Creek and it was an old bridge across it at one time, a really nice old metal bridge with arches. And back when people started getting cars back in the 20s and so around here, they'd be driving across the bridge and they'd come up on this uh, old Indian woman standing beside the bridge with a, a shawl on and she'd be... Um, like waiting for a ride and they would stop and pick her up and she'd be in the back seat and they'd be driving along and then they'd look back and she'd be gone and it, she was called a little gray lady and that's the legend of the little gray lady at doggy creek and then there's a another story that a friend of mine told me he's not osage but he and his family were living in a house out at doggy creek in a farmhouse and um this is probably in the 1970s um he was in junior high at the time and uh, or high school I'm not quite sure and uh, he uh, and his brother uh, had some coon dogs and whenever the dogs would go running off the porch down to Doggy Creek uh, they'd grab their BB guns or 22s and go and see what was down there to go and shoot it and uh, anyway their dogs were running down there baying really loud and all of a sudden the dogs came back towards them running really fast back to the house and just passed them up like they were scared to death or something and the boys went on down there to see what was there and they saw these really big tracks and the tracks were three toed they said and um all of a sudden they heard something fall out of a tree there's a lot of trees that line this creek and with a really heavy thud to the ground and they got really scared and they just ran back up to the house and they never could tell whatever that creature was that was down there that their dogs were afraid of and then the last story that I think I have time for to tell is this other family, an Indian family, has a farmhouse on Doggy Creek and some land, a big farm and stuff. And they had recently moved from their farm there and were uh, renting their house out to some other people in town. And the people that lived there, um, there was a mother and a father and two kids and a grand grandmother was there. And the parents worked the night shift in Ponca City, which is only about a 20-minute drive on this old road. And... Um, the grandmother was there with the two young kids. The little girl was around eight, and the little boy was right around 10 or 12, and they really heard uh, the animals out in the barnyard uh, making a rust because they could hear the pig squealing and the horse neighing and everything. So the grandmother told the boy to go out there and uh, see what was going on, you know? And it's about 10 o'clock at night. The little boy goes out there, and right when he gets to the barnyard, he sees a, a pig literally flying over the eight-foot corral fence and just wooden planks on the fence and so he gets scared he goes back and he tells his grandmother she goes i saw it you know through the plate glass window she's just standing in the living room looking out and she said here take the shotgun so he goes out there with the shotgun and uh he goes in the pen there 
he's sneaking around into there and he, he goes to the front of the barn. Their doors are open and he sees a silhouette of a tall humanoid like figure, had arms and legs. All he could see, he said it was really tall. So he was so scared, he just unloaded the shotgun from the hip at that creature. And when it hit the creature, he wasn't too far away, maybe 20, 30 feet. The creature was holding, had its arm up on the beam at the door of the barn. And when the shot hit him, the creature screamed out loud, really loud, and yelled. And the kid ran back to the house. He was, or he stood there for a minute, and then getting ready to run. And the monster ran, jumped the eight-foot fence, and into a soybean field that was right next to the barnyard there. And ran through that field down there to the creek. And the little boy ran up to the house and told the grandma. And the grandma was already on the phone to the cops in town and and the police in town on their scanners. They called the Ponca City Police, the Fairfax Police and everything. And anyway, when they got out there, the the blood from the monster or whatever it was bleeding was in the field and it was white, they said. And uh, not too long after the cops and everybody arrived there and the parents came from work, a helicopter landed in that field and guys got out in hazmat suits and they completely took all the evidence, took all the plants out of the field took the dead pig they didn't take the horse the horse that was in the pen i forgot to say the horse had scratches on its flanks big scratch marks on its flanks anyway the police told the parents and the kids and everything and the grandma they hauled them all the way to ponca city said nobody's going to believe you if you tell this story they're not tell it everybody's going to think you're crazy so don't tell anybody and so they didn't for years until i heard about it in the early 2000s from the original owners of the house that's part of the Doggy Creek legend story. So thank you so much for letting me tell my stories here from Osage County. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Wendy. Now I tried to find this particular creek, but came up empty. I'm either searching the wrong name, or perhaps it's a local name, or maybe it's just too small to be located on the map. But I couldn't find a Doggy Creek or anything that sounded similar you know not to say it doesn't exist but a lot of what wendy said rings true for years now oklahoma has been a well-known pocket of activity sasquatch activity and folks in the sooner state well they seem to be taking advantage Vacation season is in full swing, and there's a part of the Sooner State that is seeing a big increase in visitors. Broken Bow in southeastern Oklahoma recently ranked second in VRBO's list of fastest-growing U.S. travel destinations. As Two News Oklahoma anchor Julie Chin found out, some head there to enjoy life off the grid, and others are in search of a legend. Tourism officials confirm there are more unofficial sightings of Bigfoot here in McCurtain County than anywhere else in the state. Whether you believe or not, one thing is for sure, Bigfoot is big business here. Everybody comes in and asks about Bigfoot. Janet Grass has run Janet's treasure chest in Broken Bow for over 20 years. The constant growth. A supersized Sasquatch sits outside Janet's store. Inside, there are six rooms stocked with souvenirs. She's not the only one leaning into the legend. You can take a spin at Bigfoot Speedway, grab some garb at Bigfoot T-shirts, and at Mountain Fork Brewery, you can even order something called a Squatch Burger. Tourism officials say the number of visitors has doubled in this part of the state over the last few years. Janet says it's no wonder. By the time they go home, some of them even come back in here and say, we saw Bigfoot last night. Now that clip courtesy of 2 News Oklahoma. 
and is fun and perhaps somewhat validating as tourism like that is. It also has an ugly side. This happened just last week. The Pontotoc County Sheriff's Department responded to a call just outside of Ada city limits about an alleged murder Saturday afternoon. Deputies arrived at the scene to suspect Larry Sanders admitting to a family member that he had killed his friend Jimmy Knighton. As part of the investigation, the Sheriff's Department was able to uncover a motive. Appeared to be under the influence of something. So his statement was that Mr. Knighton had summoned uh, Bigfoot to come in and uh, kill him. And that's why he had to kill Mr. Knighton. Search agencies in the Pontotoc County Sheriff's Department weren't able to locate the victim's body until Sunday afternoon. Now, the Sheriff's Department begins working on proof of the alleged crime. It always makes it easier. You still have to uh, prove all the elements of the crime and uh, what the suspect is telling you. You have to prove that, that that's actually what, what happened. As Sanders awaits his trial and charges in the Pontotoc County Jail, Sheriff Christian says the death penalty is the harshest punishment that the prosecution could push for. Now that clip property of WMTV, NBC Channel 15 out of Madison, Wisconsin. And as you will continue to learn throughout this episode, as scary as the creatures in the forest are, human beings are the real monsters. Thank you again, Wendy, for the entry. If anyone has a bead on that creek, hit me up because I'd love to learn more. Now, folks, if I can, for just a hot second, while I'm on my month-long hiatus, please consider supporting other programs, arts, or entertainment. The paranormal world has a lot to offer, and many folks creating would really enjoy some support. So jump on Etsy and buy some art. Download a brand new paranormal podcast. Watch something new on YouTube, or just support an artist you already enjoy. Our little community could use as much support as it can get. Now let's get back to the programming with this bridge-related entry from Dakota in Indiana. Hi, Derek. My name is Dakota Wood. I'm calling for your Hometown Legends episode. I'm from Putnam County, Indiana, about 45 minutes west of Indianapolis. We're a very rural county. My legend is about a covered bridge close to the west county line called Edna Collins Bridge. The story behind the bridge is a little girl would get dropped off by her parents to swim, and one day when they honked, she didn't come back. So it's told she either drowned or was killed by the milkman or mailman. I'm not sure which one I want to believe, but the story is basically what's supposed to happen is you pull up, honk three times, and she's supposed to get in the car because she thinks you're her parents. So back in the summer of 2016, 2017, it was a really, really nice night. Bright moon. I could see all the stars and skies and everything. Me and some friends decided to go what we call spooking, and we decided to go to the bridge first. And it was probably midnight or 1230, somewhere around in there. So there are actually two ways to summon, so to say, Edna Collins. First one is you pull up, honk three times, and she comes from the east end up the walking trail. And it's not like an actual walking trail, it's like an animal path now. But she'll come up the bank and over the guardrail and climb in the car. 
so we tried that and nothing happened so we tried the second way which is you honk three times pull through the bridge turn around and come back so we pull through the bridge turn around on the west end and come back through to the east end well as we're coming up the approach into the bridge it's probably a five six foot approach anyways so we come up the approach and the headlights are shining up in the rafters and I see this black head in the archway on the east end of the bridge and it's coming down the outside of the bridge and like curling under the top of the archway to go up into the rafters it was probably four or five feet long so it wasn't a raccoon or you know anything like that the way it moved was human but it wasn't and the front legs I say legs because it didn't look like human appendages because of the way they've been. It was like dog leggish, And, like, my eyes locked on it. This was all in a matter of probably four or five seconds. And then the headlights left the rafters and went back down to road height. But the area is very rural. There's a little township in the area, but it's very rural. There's no houses directly around the bridge i plan on going by the area and taking some pictures whenever i get off work today and uh, i will email those to you but um back to the figure the way it moved was almost humanoid but it didn't look humanoid it was completely smooth no fur nothing wild like that and I think what creeped me out the most was I saw this instead of a little girl that was supposed to get in the car. And that's what creeped me out the most. But if anybody from the Putnam County, Indiana area has ever seen or been out to Edna Collins, seen what I've seen, um, and they might have any advice or recommendation of what it might have been, it would be great to hear that. Derek, if you have any insight on the ordeal, I would love to hear your opinion. Anyways, love the podcast. I've been listening since March of 2021, and I am completely caught up. I'm actually re-listening to a lot of them, and I do plan to call in about some more uh, paranormal stuff that I've came across. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Dakota. You know, this isn't the only bridge-related entry submitted this evening. I have yet another coming up in tonight's extended Beyond episode, but more on joining that here at the end of the show. But believe it or not, this is also not the only haunted bridge entry from the state of Indiana I've received this evening. So please welcome Geo, also from the Hoosier State. Hello, Derek. My name is Gio, and I'm calling in regards to Hometown Legends. I live in Avon, Indiana, and pretty much everyone who lives in Avon knows about a haunted bridge where, as the legend goes, people have died on that bridge and that their ghosts still can be heard to this day. The bridge was built in 1906 and has train tracks that trains still use to this day. The bridge is so iconic that it is seen on signs that welcome you to Avon. 
the stories I've heard as to why this bridge is haunted is that while it was under construction, one of the workers fell into a patch of wet cement and died after it hardened. They say you can still hear his muffled cries for help from the concrete walls of the bridge. Another story is that a woman was walking on the train tracks over the bridge while carrying a baby and was forced to jump to avoid getting hit by an oncoming train. She and her baby didn't survive the fall and they say you can still hear her screams as she left to her death when you drive under the bridge at night. Now, I've driven under this bridge well over a hundred times and I haven't heard anything or any sounds coming from the bridge that sound like a woman screaming or a muffled voice. But the bridge can be pretty spooky at night. So I've done some research on the bridge and couldn't find anything about anyone dying. I don't know what could be causing people to hear a voice coming from inside the walls of the bridge, but I do think that when it comes to the sound of a woman screaming, it could be the sound of a distant train breaking since the sounds are high-pitched and could maybe confuse some people into believing that they hear a woman screaming. Now, do I believe those stories to be true? Uh, no, I can't say that I do. But I'm not ignorant to the fact that every ghost story may have a kernel of truth to it. Okay, I love your show. Thanks, Joe. You know the moral here is don't die on a bridge in Indiana. Whatever you do. Thanks again, gentlemen. Like Gio said, there may not be a lot of truth to these legends, but there always seems to be a kernel of truth in there somewhere. And if that's the case, it's terrifying stuff. Now what do you say we discuss something we don't explore all that often? Out-of-place animals. Please welcome this anonymous caller from Parts Unknown. Hey, I was just listening to a story about a woman who saw something that looked like a kangaroo in New Mexico. I've never heard you mention this, so I just wanted to call and mention it. You probably know about this, but just in case you don't, there are lots of kangaroos in the United States. Like, there's a very good Oklahoma hunter video of him hunting and a kangaroo running by. There are multiple news articles over the past decades from Wisconsin of police trying to capture these kangaroos. There are multiple news articles about kangaroos in Ohio as well. But to be fair, the ones in Ohio were known pets. I mean, I'm pretty sure at some point they all were known pets, but there's lots of news articles about kangaroos in Oklahoma, Ohio, Wisconsin. So I just wanted to call and mention that because I suspect that some of these sightings especially like dogman sightings in those areas. I'm not saying they all are kangaroos, but if you're walking in the woods and you can't see very far in front of you and you stumble across a fucking kangaroo, you know, you're, I mean, if you're not prepared for it, you're going to think it's something wild. Anyway, I just want to call and mention that. You can look these things up yourself and you'll see that what I'm telling you is the truth. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Bye. Thank you, caller. Now, of course, he's speaking of a phenomenon known as phantom kangaroos. Or more simply put, out-of-place kangaroos. And our caller is exactly right. Oklahoma did experience a sighting that was captured on film. Now, typically, sharing audio from a sighting like this is a waste of time. But these guys, well, they made it interesting. We're goose hunting right now, and there's literally a kangaroo getting ready to f***ing jump by us. Oh my god, this is insane. 
What in the crap is going on? <laughs> there it is! There it is! Oh my god! Here it comes! There it is! There it is! There's a kangaroo! Sure enough, from left to right, a large kangaroo goes trucking by. And you know, as our caller mentioned, Oklahoma is not the only state heavy on the roo. This happened in the Buckeye State as well. Kangaroo crossing signs are common throughout Australia, but the residents of North Ridgeville, Ohio, might want to consider making a small investment in such signage after a kangaroo recently took to the streets. A motorist spotted the marauding marsupial in the middle of a road during the early morning hours of November 27th. Authorities arrived on the scene and, though not trained to deal with such animals, were eventually able to corral the buck and get him back in his pen. Police said it appeared the kangaroo, named Foster, looked ready for a bout of fisticuffs with one patrolman. Their Facebook page noted, Luckily, cooler heads prevailed, and Foster called it a night before it came to blows. Now that clip is ironic because, just down the road, this was taking place. Deer crossing signs are probably more common in Ohio, but in Clintonville, a yellow diamond-shaped kangaroo crossing sign has been up since 2014. But now, to the disappointment of the town's residents, the City Department of Public Service had the sign removed earlier this week. City spokesman Jeffrey Ortega told WOSU-FM that to his understanding, the sign had no permit and was removed once the city was made aware of it which apparently took four years. Residents started a campaign on GoFundMe to raise money for a new kangaroo crossing sign and said any money that doesn't go toward replacing the sign will go to a charity supporting kangaroo welfare. So who put the sign up in the first place? UPI reports neighbor Jared Laffbaum said he put the sign up as a joke to replace a construction sign, not because of an increase of the Clintonville kangaroo population, but to protect the ones that are already there. Now those clips courtesy of GeoBeats and USA Today respectfully. And yeah, we're talking about escaped pets here. It's not a huge snarly monster, but it is odd, and it is out of place. And it does pose a question. Is it possible that every North American kangaroo sighting is that of an escaped pet? Or is it possible that, like in the third state mentioned in the call, they might not all be kangaroos? Found in Linda Godfrey's American Monsters is an account from Lori Little, a resident of Toma, Wisconsin, and witness to something equally as strange. About 9.40 p.m. tonight, I heard my dog barking outside like he was scared. So I put my glasses on and opened up the door, and there was a creature that looked very similar to a kangaroo, about four and one-half feet tall, standing on the other side of my car, about 25 feet away from my dog. When I opened the door, it turned its head toward me, really creepy, and had this weird yellow eye shine. I saw the upper body, smaller arms sticking out in front, upper torso, later brown-colored fur like deer brown during the heat of the summer. It had a bony head, kangaroo-like ears, and a thinner neck than I would expect. It was not a deer, dog, goat, anything I can think of, and I don't think it was a kangaroo either. It was unnatural like it could be an alien as much as it could be a kangaroo. Very creepy. I looked at it for a minute and decided I needed a flashlight. A minute later when I returned, it was gone. And this was in my yard. Now I should also point out that the infield monster of Illinois 
in the original Chupacabra accounts from Puerto Rico also describe a kangaroo-like creature. And reports like these have persisted for decades, and maybe even longer. So seeing an Australian mammal in the wild here is unusual. Assuming it's just another kangaroo, well, that is unadvised. So thanks again, caller, for bringing it up. I've been waiting for some phantom kangaroo discussion for quite a while. Now for a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, when we think about health, we normally default to thinking about physical health, making sure our bodies are in good shape by exercising, eating right. But our mental health is just as important. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time in keeping our brains healthy. One way to do that is through BetterHelp Online Therapy. I've struggled with depression my whole life, and therapy has helped give me the tools I need to deal with it in a healthier way. Life can sometimes feel like a roller coaster, and I think therapy can do a lot to help everyone manage the ups and downs. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's a lot more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So if you've been thinking about therapy, take this as your sign to get started now. And I know you'll be glad you did. Monsters Among Us listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash monsters among us. That's betterhelp.com forward slash monsters among us. As always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. Now back to that strange shadow outside your window. Now let's make our way over to the Pacific Northwest, where Chelsea is waiting with an entry. Hi, Derek. My name is Chelsea. I am from Eugene, Oregon. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years now. It's been really cool to listen to everyone's stories. I've decided to call in a hometown legend. I don't know if anyone else in the area has experienced these encounters like I have, but I worked at the Shelton McMurphy House for a couple of years serving tea. It's now a museum slash tea house, and it's owned by the local historical society. A couple of times that I was working there, I encountered two different entities. Um, The first one was a little girl. I'd gone upstairs to get some uniforms that me and the other gals that were working one of the teas. And I had walked out of one of the rooms and I had seen this little girl, probably about six or seven years old, just looking at me. And I could see directly through her and she was definitely a spirit. And her hair was burnt. I could see ash in it. Her dress that she was wearing was severely burnt. And she had been crying, and she was asking me for help. And I said, well, it's going to be okay, you know. And then she just walked into one of the other rooms and had gone in there to see where she had gone, but she had disappeared. And I went back downstairs, and I told the gals, I was like, I found it strange that when I was trying to look for the uniforms, they weren't in the main closet that we'd usually put them in. And they said, oh, she must have moved them. I said, well, who? And they said, oh, the little girl. I said, what girl? And they said, oh, the girl that died in the house fire up in the attic. So I guess this home is now the second time that it's been rebuilt. There was a fire 
and there was a girl that had died up in the attic. And then a couple weeks later, I'd came back to do another tea event, and we had just wrapped up, and we were cleaning, and I was in the parlor area of the house cleaning, and I looked over in this very large chair, and there was a gentleman, same scenario, it just could see straight through him, plain as day, just like the little girl, but he was not burnt, and he had a very distinct mustache on his face. And I looked at him, and I'd seen him, and he acknowledged me, and he says, ma'am, can I have some tea? And I said, uh, no, I'm sorry, We're, we just finished, we don't have any more, I'm sorry. And he says, no, that's quite all right. And he just stood up, walked out of the room, and just completely dispersed and totally disappeared. Gave myself a minute because I was like, okay, that's the second thing I've seen in this strange house. And then I had gone into the living room area, and when I was cleaning up the tables in there, I saw a picture on the table that had a picture of a man with a mustache, and it was the very gentleman that I had seen as I was cleaning up. So it definitely is quite the weird experiences. And I had also purchased a doll out of the gift shop there from some of the tip money that I had from working there. And I'd noticed that it was starting to move from room to room. And I thought my dad was playing a joke on me because I had told my mother and she was like, well, maybe dad's just playing a trick on you. And so I went ahead and asked my dad about it. I was like, hey, this doll that I got from the house, it keeps moving on me. And I was like, are you moving it? And he was like, I, I didn't even know you had something. And so I don't know. I personally think it might have had one of the spirits from the house that I'd seen, possibly the little girl, since it was moving from room to room, maybe maybe residual energy of like moving moving the dresses from closet to closet so they wouldn't get burned from the fire. So, uh, yeah, that's my story. Um, I've had other paranormal stuff throughout my life, but these are the main ones that I thought would be good for hometown legends. I uh, love your show and look forward to hopefully hearing this someday on your show. Thanks. Thank you, Chelsea. You know, there's nothing like a ghost sighting at work. I've had the pleasure of working several different places that claim to be haunted. But aside from a few creepy sounds, I don't recall ever encountering an entity on the clock. It takes a certain kind of person to be okay with seeing something like that. Now, I'm sure I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Maybe some of the employers at these haunted places should be offering up some hazard pay. Big thanks, Chelsea. Thanks for keeping the legend alive. Now, wasting no time here, this next one takes us to the Mississippi coast. Chris from Michigan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Derek. This is Chris. I'm calling for Hometown Legends, if you're still doing that. This one's for the state of Mississippi. So there's a river called the Pasigula River. And Elza has a nickname known as the Singing River. And it gets that name for two different reasons. One, it large wilderness that 300 native species of bird make their home there. Just real beautiful country. But... The one that's probably more interesting for this show is the legend of 
the Pasigula and Biloxi tribes. So supposedly, way back before state of Mississippi was even a state back when it was a territory in the region there on the Pascoola River. There was a tribe of Indians who were quite peaceful, supposedly, just what I've been told. And the Biloxi tribe supposedly declared war on them for some reason. I was never really told, and I've never been really able to find any proof of why. But legend says that the Pascagoula tribe, instead of trying to fight back or such, they sang, they dressed up, sang, and walked hand-in-hand into the Pascagoula River and drowned themselves. And supposedly, on clear nights, you can still hear them singing on the river. Grant, I've never heard it. I don't know if it's even a true thing or not, but... I mean, spooky. Love the show. Hope you can use this if no one else has called this story in. Alright, bye. There's a story of Manona, a Biloxi Indian maid. How she loved the son of Kusan, a Pascagoula brave. When their romance was forbidden, they decided they would die. Side by side they drowned and were never found, and now they say that's why. The Singing River Thank you, sir. Believe it or not, many of these stories have songs about them. That one is The Singing River by Kenny Roberts, released back in 1967. And as for the legend, every time I hear it, I wonder how all these details got out. The hand-in-hand peaceful track into the rapids, the singing. If they all died, who relayed that information? And actually, conflicting reports suggest that the tribes were wiped out by European diseases. But you know, I couldn't find any concrete evidence either way. And as haunting as the concept of a singing river is, this very location is also known for something far more terrifying. Something happened October of 73 That would go down in history Perhaps you've heard of 1973's Pascagoula incident. Well, the town of Pascagoula sure hasn't The city forgotten. of Pascagoula commemorating a 48-year-old tale. It made news everywhere. It so. did. Halloween may be a few weeks away, but what's scarier than being abducted by aliens? These things got to us, 
and two of them got a hold of Charlie, one of them got a hold of myself, and they turned around and they was carrying us back up inside this, what I know now was a UFO or a spaceship or whatever it was. Calvin Parker, just 19 in 1973, says it happened to him and his fishing buddy, Charlie Hickson, one night on the banks of the Pascagoula River and recounted his story to his hometown tonight. Dozens of people all ages listened intently to every word. While conscious yet mesmerized, Parker says three aliens beamed him and Hickson up, examined them, even stuck their fingers down his throat, and then dropped them back on the banks. By that time, we had turned around and looked, and this thing picked up off the ground shot straight up in the sky and just disappeared. The two passed a lie detector test and even the sheriff's office at the time believed they were telling the truth, deeming their story credible to people across the world and especially in the town where they say it happened. I believe it and I've been interested in UFOs ever since. I gotta believe that that they're out there. It definitely gives you something to think about whether you believed it happened or not. And hey, these people are sure loving it. Tonight in Pascagoula, Shelby Myers. Now that clip covering this infamous alien abduction case comes to us from WALA, Fox 10 News out of Middle Alabama. And I still don't know who sang that Pascagoula song. But if you know, be sure to let me know so proper credit can be given. And Chris, it sounds like that area has a little magic to it. Something is certainly going on down there. And thanks again for sharing it with us. Now next stop is the California coast. Roan, welcome to the program. Hey Derek, my name is Roan. I'm calling you from the San Francisco Bay Area. And I wanted to share a hometown legend called the Secret Sidewalk. Now, this is a place which has a lot of interesting things going on. So, starting off, I just wanted to say the San Francisco Bay Area has plenty of interesting little hometown legend type things. And considering how many people live in the area, I suppose that's inevitable. So, imagine if you will an elevated sidewalk that cuts through the middle of nowhere, through thick foliage, and imagine that this whole thing is covered in graffiti. This is the secret sidewalk. It's located in Fremont, to be more specific, Niles Canyon, which is still kind of like the rural part of Fremont, as crazy as that is to imagine in the Bay Area, there actually are still some rural little pockets. So officially, it is illegal to go there. It's owned by some local water district, but nobody really enforces it. It's turned into quite a little rite of passage for local kids, kind of like Hicks Road down in San Jose, which I talked about before. So basically what you're walking on is what's left of the Niles Canyon Aqueduct. But, of course, that's not what makes this little thing interesting. So one of the interesting things about it is Niles Canyon was the original Hollywood back in the silent era. In fact, if you walk in the area of the secret sidewalk, you can find some truly ancient movie sets, by which I mean about 100 years old. It's ancient for California, right? 
And if you look up on the right hill, you will see a sign just like the Hollywood sign, which says Niles, N-I-L-E-S. Crazy, right? So what else do we have going on in here? We have rumors of a very ornery man in old style Ford Bronco who will just who seemingly hangs out on the side who chases people away. We have rumors of Klan rallies happening there up until relatively recently, like the early 2000s. Now, finally, we get to something truly paranormal. It's called the White Witch of Niles Canyon. This ghost of a young lady dressed all in white is reported to be seen there and on roads nearby, and she will request a ride to see her relatives in, I think, usually San Francisco, according to the stories. And there's really very little theory as to who this was. But what people do keep saying is that if you let her get in the car, she will disappear almost immediately. It reminded me of the story that that gentleman reported from his grandfather down in Mexico. Uh, people asking him to get into your car and then they disappear. It's usually a lady in white. Anyway, I uh, love the show. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. You know, as a recovering film buff and former film school graduate, you would think I would have heard of this area. Then again, I don't spend a ton of time watching silent film, nor researching where they were filmed. Regardless, it's a fascinating place, and we can't thank you enough, Ron, for sharing it with us. So we've already ventured south of the border. So what do you guys say we pay our neighbors to the north a little visit as well? Kim from Canada. What's on your mind? Hey, Derek, this is Kim from Calgary. The story I've got is for a hometown legend. Now, we got this thing here in Calgary called the Devil's Playground. Recently, it's been demolished, but it was around for a long time. The original story that we've all been told is that this school, way back when, was a Catholic school, and the priest and one of the teachers seemed to uh, have a thing for each other. The priest said, you got to prove yourself to me that you actually want to be with me, just so I know that this isn't just some sort of game to you. So the girl decided that she's going to lock all the doors, heavy chains, and basically set the building on fire with all the students still inside of it. Now, later on, when they decided that they were going to try to demolish it, because it was, uh, you know, it wasn't able to stand up on its own properly. They wanted to get rid of it. It was becoming an insurance problem. So they decided that they were going to demolish it. They sent down a crew of people just with uh, sledgehammers and hand tools back in the day. As they went to go demolish it, every single person on site got sick. So they decided that uh, it wasn't going to be for them, that they were going to keep it up for a little bit longer. So then they got went ahead and got some commercial equipment. And when they went to go hit it with the wrecking ball, the wrecking ball fell off before it got there. So another time that they went to go take it down with a bulldozer, the bulldozer just seemed to stop operating. And it was about three years, four years ago when they were actually able to tear the thing down. And I don't believe anybody got sick during that. Now, from everybody that says that they've broken into there, toured there, there's an angry farmer that used to just chase you. But as all hometown legends are, you're able to see footprints, hear the the voices of children laughing, playing, and all that fun jazz. 
Anyways, Derek, thanks for the show. Hopefully you're able to use this. I don't know when I'm going to catch up. I'm almost on season nine. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks, Cam. Always be suspicious of places with demonic-sounding names. Devil's Tower. Devil's Canyon. Satan's Slide. The Devil's Playground. Which I suppose begs this question. Would that same activity be reported if these locations were named something benign? Something else? Or does the devilish moniker somehow manifest a strange reputation? A strange activity? It's a real chicken-in-the-egg dilemma. But thank you, Kim, for begging the question. Okay, before we visit this next hair-raising hometown legend, a quick little update on our upcoming film, Shadows in the Desert, High Strangeness in the Borrego Triangle. Now, I'm saying this cautiously, but we fully intend on having a completed and locked picture by the time I return in mid-September. If you're a Kickstarter backer, your reward packages will go out as soon as the Blu-rays slash DVDs are burned and in my hands. And with a little luck, we will know more about the distribution details then as well. So the good news here is that we are very, very close. And I mean it this time. Now let's venture to the state of Kentucky, where our anonymous caller would like to tell you about his town. Hi, Derek. Uh, I'm calling in with a hometown legend. This one is about Russellville, Kentucky, and it's a small town in a county in Kentucky that borders Tennessee. This is going to be a good old-fashioned ghost story, uh, so I hope they enjoy this one. Uh, Now, a little bit of geographical context first, though. Russellville's only like half an hour away from Adams, Tennessee. Adams, Tennessee has its own much more famous ghost story, and what I can tell you about that story is so Adam Smithy is the Bell Witch story. And when I was in school, that was also a story that was circulated a lot. Although for some reason in elementary school, it morphed into uh, say her name three times in the mirror at candlelight kind of thing. I don't know why, that, but that's how that story got shared among school kids. But Russellville is known for its own ghost. So just off of a, a, actually kind of a main stretch of town, whatever counts as a main stretch in a town of like 7,000 people. There's this modest little white house, and it was built around 1870. It's a single-story house, but for a cupola over the front door. Now, the front door has a large plaque marking the house as the Sexton House. little context here, a Sexton is a caretaker for a churchyard or a graveyard, and the house is, in fact, situated adjacent to the Maple Grove Cemetery and at one point in time did house the groundskeeper, although I don't think the current occupants are. Now, the ghost story itself. One version of the story goes as follows. A young woman, the daughter of the caretaker, was preparing to meet her beloved at a town picnic and dance. She watched in dismay from the cupola as a thunderstorm rolled over the horizon and, upset at the weather ruining her chance to see her beloved, she defiantly raised her fist in the air and cursed the name of God, and as if to stop her string of blasphemies, a bolt of lightning struck through the cupola window and killed her where she stood, etching her image forever into that window. Now, in the 1920s, presumably irritated by gawkers, the owner of the house at that time painted white over the windows of the cupola. But it's still said that on a stormy night, you can make out the silhouette in between lightning strikes. As far as I can tell, no one's actually been able to identify the young woman, though. 
And it's always struck me as a little bit odd, given that we know the story was circulating within 50 years of the house being built. And then there's several actually conflicting variants of the story of the young woman. Other versions have her preparing to run away with her beloved against the wishes of her parents, for example. And then accounts aren't necessarily consistent as to how the apparition actually appears. Sometimes it's a full body, sometimes it's a face, sometimes it's stationary, and sometimes it's moving. But the story is popular enough that at least through, through middle school, I remember some of my classmates claiming that they saw something strange in that upstairs window whenever they would pass by the house in a storm, even through the pain. And it makes for a good campfire story anyway. Thanks for your time and keep up the good work. Thank you, caller. You know, that's one of the things I love about Hometown Legends. It puts places on the map, so to speak. I had not heard of Russellville, nor its paranormal associations. So I'm certainly grateful that you shared these myths tonight. Thanks again, caller, for sharing the info. Well, let's stay in that area with this entry from Jason in nearby Tennessee. Hi, Derek. My name is Jason. I live in Tennessee. I have been meaning to call you about this particular incident anyway, and on Season 12, Episode 20, the Hometown Legends episode, Corey called in about uh, an ammunition plant in West Tennessee where there were rumors of uh, big cat sightings. And I am calling you to kind of follow up on that. I actually worked at that facility uh, for a number of years. It was an Army-run facility. Uh, I had to have a security clearance to get on it. It's thousands of acres surrounded by a fence, and there were several different buildings on this uh, site. And I actually saw one of the cats that Corey was referring to. I was working second shift from 4 p.m. to 12 a.m., I was leaving around midnight there, and the drive from where I worked to the main highway was about 12, 15 minutes, something like that. This would have been in the early 90s, by the way, 92, 93, uh, when this took place. But I left the plant and was headed back out towards the main highway, and there are no street lights here or anything. It's, it's dark. It's like driving through country. So I came to a to like a four-way stop there, and up ahead I could see eye shine and i know Corey mentioned that the place was absolutely stockpiled full of deer and he's right you could just watch them grazing like cattle out in that place uh there was a hunting season but it was very limited and very hard to get one uh, there were some huge deer and lots of them on this facility but and i thought that's what it was was a deer but as i got closer i noticed that it was it was just way too small to be a to be a full-grown you know male deer it was much lower down to the ground and as i got closer I quickly realized that as this thing kind of got into my my high-beam headlights, it was a large black cat that was crouched down next to the side of the road. Couldn't really believe what I was seeing at first. Uh, You know, you always hear the the stories about, oh, so-and-so saw this, so-and-so saw that, but I'd never witnessed that before myself, but I witnessed it this night. It was crouched down. It looked at me for two or three seconds i came to a stop and was just looking at it and then it darted across the road in front of me long big sleek black cat uh long tail out behind it just like you'd see in a zoo and it ran off into the woods over to my left 
and I was still so stunned that I, I didn't move for a minute, and I slowly crept up and rolled out my window about to where I thought this thing might have gone in the woods, and I didn't hear anything in the woods and kind of creeped myself out because I was thinking, if this thing's sitting on the side of the road looking at me, I'm in big trouble. So I, I went ahead and drove off and went home. And the next day when I got to work, I asked some of the old-timers out there about seeing one of these animals. I got some kind of sideways looks and people to laugh, but I also got some old-timers that said they'd seen something similar. I didn't go into very much detail, just that there's lots of things in these woods that, you know, lots of folks don't know about around here. But anyway, I wanted to share the story with you and, and give some validity to Corey's story. That is the real. It's the only one I've ever seen. I haven't seen one since, but I love the podcast. And I appreciate what you do. Thanks, sir. How about that? You know, it's not every day that one of these hometown legend stories is validated. Or at least corroborated. But if you're like me, and you can't remember the call Jason is referring to, here is Cody's entry from that season 12 hometown legends episode. Hey, Derek. This is Cody from Tennessee Flesh, California. Growing up in Tennessee, I grew up in a small town. There's plenty of ABC sightings around where I am, which I called in before to tell you we live about eight miles away from a military arsenal that has a lot of acreage pardoned off that you're not supposed to trespass. Like, I had a buddy walk the train tracks and got within the perimeter before he knew it, and he had a Hummer actually pull up through the field and escort him out. They're real high on security. That's where supposedly the military exposed ABCs to the area there to help with the deer population, which is out of control. And they didn't expect them to take hold and breed so fast, which, I mean, that's what happens when animals have abundance of food. But, yeah, apparently that's the way the rumor is. The military dropped off Black Panthers to help since cougars weren't really a thing in the area. And... Honestly, if cougars were a thing in the area, people would probably shoot them. People seeing a giant black panther, they're more prone to stop and stare or just run. Or they get nervous when they try to shoot, which is why you see most people miss. But it's a pretty prevalent thing. If you ask a lot of older people around that area in West Tennessee, most of them have seen one or knows of someone close that has seen one. It's pretty common. It's a phenomenon. There it's not so much encrypted it's just a part of life all right thank you Derek you know I'm always skeptical about the government releasing blank into the wilderness conspiracy theories most on account of the lack of evidence you know over the years I've heard many old-timers claim it to be true but not one offered up anything more than the story as evidence and I don't doubt that the cats are out there I've seen one myself the story of which I will not bore you with tonight. But I, like Jason, know that they're out there. Whatever they are. So thank you, gentlemen, for sharing your entries with us. And while I'm at it, you know, Cody actually submitted another hometown legend for this special episode. So for an encore of sorts, please welcome back Cody from Old Rocky Top. Hey, Derek, this is Cody from uh, California slash Tennessee. I hope you're having a good day. I've been going through your podcast backwards, which I wish I wouldn't have now, because I just came across your 
season six hometown legends. And um, the two Tennessee calls back to back, the one from the lady in Medina and the one from the lady in Jackson. I lived about 30 minutes from both of those, and I've been to both of those places, the dollhouse and the bridge. The dollhouse is a bit creepy. Unfortunately, it burned down, I think, twice due to teenagers being stupid. It is right beside a bunch of houses, so yeah, you have to turn your headlights off on approach or walk a long ways to get there. But yeah, it was basically a little dollhouse with a window in it, and all it really had was a little children's rocking chair, a book, and like a book of poems on the table inside. You could look through the window. When that one burned down, it was more like a more durable longhouse built over the length of the grave with just one long window pane on one side. I will admit and say that I went inside the dollhouse on a dare because it had a door. I wish I hadn't them now, but it is what it is. Yeah, people used to report the rocking chair would rock, that the book of poems would flip through pages sometimes at night. One thing that I've gotten from a couple of different reports is on approach, there would always be the breaking of limbs in one of the trees nearby the cemetery. And I, I mean, the like high up, like there's 20 feet up, a limb would snap off as soon as you get close to the cemetery. I don't know what it was. There's a lot of dead trees around there, so it's probably that. Just a weird coincidence that all teenagers notice when they're getting spooked out. On top of that bridge, nothing happened with us. There was another one nearby called, I think it was nicknamed Crybaby's Bridge. But after listening to your show, I realized it's basically a copy-paste of other stories. It's basically, you stop your car on the bridge, after a while you pass, and you'll notice like baby handprints on your car old story apparently some kids got thrown off the bridge or there's accident and they drowned in the water below on top of that there was some place around there i wasn't driving and it was midnight so i don't remember where it was but there's a old abandoned church we went to it was out of the way really odd the cross wasn't even up on the building anymore. It was an old wooden building. There's an outhouse out behind it. It was like a circle gravel road that went up a little hill, and at the top of the hill was the church. Across from the road was a old cemetery, like the wrought iron. Couldn't even really see the tombstone much anymore. You go inside the church, and uh, it's got the raised, I don't know what you call it, not altar, because it sounds a bit cold. I can't talk. Um, basically, you know what I'm saying, but it still had the pews in it. It even had a piano sitting in it still. And uh, of course, one of my buddies went up and started playing on it, but it was, it was one of the oddest feelings you had just stepping into an old abandoned place like that, mostly because of a place like that is pretty high energy and it's just that empty feeling. I don't really know how to describe it. All right. Thank you, Derek. You have a good day. Now, if you're playing Hometown Legends Bingo, Cody just hooked you up. I think he hit all the hallmarks there, which, of course, is what made it such a great call. You know, that part of the country seems to be teeming with all sorts of spooks and specters. 
and thank you for contributing to the lore, Cody. We finally near the end of this special episode. But don't go feeling all relieved just yet. You haven't heard Joseph's call out of North Carolina. Hi, Derek. This is Joseph from North Carolina. I want to bring up my hometown legend from West Covina, California. There's a park called Galster Park. It's G-A-L-S-T-E-R. And from the stories I've heard when I was a kid was that there was a murderer that lived in a shack on top of a hill and he would kill children. And people go there and hang themselves. And there's apparently a lot of satanic worship cults that practice there. That's really all I know about the park. I know it's short and sweet, but um, that's just my hometown legend from West Covina, California. Love your podcast, and have a great day. Bye. Thanks, Joseph. West Covina. Not all that far from here. That's where our closest Ikea is, in fact. So given its proximity, I felt the need to get to the bottom of this park's mysteries. Now, firstly, the park is large, and some terrible things have happened within its boundaries. But I found no evidence of a serial child killer. Now, there might be that kernel of truth, but I was unable to find it on this search. But since we're visiting sunny Southern California, I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to tell you about my hometown legend. 18 miles as the crow flies, or a little over an hour through nerve-fraying mountain roads, is the town of Fontana, California. It sits at the base of the San Bernardino Mountains, the origin of tonight's and most nights' broadcasts. The 210 and I-15 freeways cut right through her, as does the iconic Route 66. But it's another stretch of concrete that I'd like to tell you about this evening. The Fontana Dragway, or later known as Mickey Thompson International Dragway, where from 1955 to its closure in 1972, dragsters, funny cars, and speedsters of all types tested their metal and their machines. But it's not the ghost of a wreck victim that haunts the track, or even a UFO that breached the jagged edges of the looming Cucamonga Peak. Now, this is a story about a monster. A monster that, like most back in the day, earned itself a reputable nickname. warm evenings when the dragsters ripped up and down the track. Fans in the grandstands would see a dark, shaggy-haired creature venture back and forth along the fence, and eventually raiding nearby dumpsters along the parking area. Although hundreds of spectators reportedly laid eyes on this beast, not one could definitively say what it was. And this wasn't a one-time event. This exact scenario played out several nights in a row, over several years' stretch. And each night, not a soul brave enough to investigate. 
another creature showed up often enough to earn itself a nickname. A handle that still resonates with me to this day. The Speedway Monster not only frequented the track, but reports of an upright hairy monster began to flood in from all over the Fontana area. And rumor has it that whatever it was, had a mean streak. In July of 1965, a young boy was attacked by the monster as he walked home. According to the account, the creature surprised the lad by jumping out from behind some bushes. As he tried to wrangle away from the monster, his clothes were torn to shreds. The child managed to get loose and run away. The monster reportedly didn't give chase. On August 27th of that same year, a young woman was attacked while in her parked car on a residential street in Fontana by a mud-covered monster that smelled like a dead animal. The creature reportedly grabbed her through the open driver's side window. Frightened, the young woman put the car in gear and stepped on the gas to escape, again leaving the monster in the dust. And back in the 1800s, an area between what is now the towns of Laverne and Pomona, nearby Fontana, was known to local Indians, Toibepe, or Devil Woman who was there. The reported hunting grounds of a female Bigfoot. And of course, this newspaper article from August of 1966. Is there a monster? Fontana girls say yeah. You take the little dirt road north of the Fontana drag strip leading down to the wash. You go around this little bend in the road. Then, just after you get caught in a chuck hole, you look up. And that, said Jerry Mendenhall of 17419 Barbie Street, is when she got her first glimpse of the monster. Jerry and her friend, Kathy Aldrich, swear they saw a monster down in the wash Thursday night. Jerry has scratches on her arm, some of them deep enough to draw blood to prove it. But the officers at the Sheriff's Fontana substation act like they don't believe it. A joke's a joke, one of them said to the girls. You'd be better off to tell the truth. The truth is exactly what they're telling, the girls maintain. It was a furry, brownish monster, so tall that its waist came up to the top of Jerry's T-bird. It could have been a gorilla or an ape or a bear, you name it. The girls, both 16, first heard about the monster from some boys they knew. They didn't believe the stories they heard, that one of the boys had been knocked unconscious by the monster, that another had been choked by it, and that several other youths had taken shots at the monster. Thanks David Flora of Blurry Photos, and thanks to the San Bernardino Sun for the article. And you know that's not all. Drivers were forced by the bees to swerve off of roads. And farmers found entire coops of chickens flattened, as if they were squashed with a steamroller. I mean, what does something like that? Well, the drag strip is long gone, but the concrete remains, right next to the Aldi that Sarah and I frequent a few times a month. It's practically hiding there in plain sight. And before you start saying, Fontana is basically a Los Angeles suburb. How could a creature survive there? Sure, it's populated. But it's also on the outskirts, pressed against a mountain range with hundreds of miles of open desert lying just beyond the ridges. There's plenty of places to hide. So if you find yourself driving the 15, 210, or the 10 freeways, and you glance up at the green vastness of the mammoth San Bernardino Mountains, keep an eye out for the Speedway Monster. 
just because the drag strip is gone does not mean that he is. Man, I love a good monster story, even if I'm telling it. But what is a monster, really? A beast? An outsider? Both. Maybe Alex in Illinois can weigh in with some input. Hey, Derek. Alex from Chicago. Up until a couple of years ago, we had an old family farm down in uh, central eastern Illinois, outside of the main town of Robinson, a little place called New Hebron. Uh, it was in the family for... Uh, 130, 140 years before it finally got sold, unfortunately. And my great-grandpa, who grew up on that farm, of course, very interesting guy. He died shortly after I was born, so I didn't really ever know him, but he was a bit of a legend himself. War hero, roustabout, uh, you know, traveled by uh, riding the undersides of train cars and all that romantic early 20th century stuff. And he was a, a character, and he told a lot of stories. And a lot of them were tall tales or, you know, yarns that he liked to spin for the kids. I recently, a few years ago, came into possession of uh, audio recordings of, of him telling some of his favorite stories. And I decided as a editor and a writer to, to transcribe those and do some research on them. The one story that I always loved from when I was a kid, because my grandpa would tell it, was a story about that farm in, in Illinois where there was a guy, his name was Tom Rogers, and he was a wild man. He lived, supposedly, in the acreage around the family farm in the woods there. And the way they would know he was around was they'd hear a single shotgun report go off, and they would find a burned-out campfire, and they said he would shoot squirrels cook them in a ball of mud. Apparently it was a, an old Indian way of cooking. I, I don't know the validity of any of that, but my great-grandpa said in the recording, and other people have recorded this too, that he said he spent a good 15 years trying to catch up to this guy, and he never could. He would be hot on his trail and would come up and the embers of the fire would still be glowing and this guy would be gone, no trace of him. Supposedly he had a little cabin back there in the woods and whatnot, but no one ever found him. And what was amazing was as the decades went by and this guy who I believe was born in the 1870s, you know, could not possibly have still been alive, you would still hear a single shotgun report and sometimes you'd still find apparently the burned out campfire or these mud balls. And this went on up to the 80s, early 90s, who knows, uh, but it, it always fascinated me, and what was really cool was that in doing some research on it, I found out that not only was this guy a very real person, his father was a religious leader of some sort in the community, whose gravestone says he was 128 when he died, which couldn't probably not true. But this Tom Rogers character, I, I found these old newspaper reports from down there, that he actually shot his cousin in the back with a shotgun, mind you, over a game of cards. And he actually later then pulled a gun on his father trying to get his inheritance early so he could get down. And when he did that, he actually got arrested, went to Pontiac State Prison, 
so I got all these reports from local historians down there, and then the prison actually sent me his records. I have copies of them. It's really fascinating. And the date lines up to where this guy would have gotten out and maybe then gone and lived in the woods. The Rogers family were neighbors of, of my family's farm. So it almost makes sense, and I, I think there's definitely some validity to it. Now, the ghost part of it, who knows, but still fascinating nonetheless. Figured I'd tell that story. Keep up the great work, Eric. Take care. Now, first off, Alex, if any of your great-grandfather's recorded stories are fit for this program, I would love to share with the listeners. If that's the case, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Now, we've talked about wild men of various degrees over the years. The North Pond Hermit, Jacko the Missing Link, McDodge, if you believe what you see on television. But Tom Rogers is not a tale that I'm familiar with. And I did some digging around, but it seems the internet hasn't heard of him either. But that's the beauty of monsters among us. Because thanks to this program, it's now saved out there somewhere. Rattling through the interwebs. But you know, this call got me thinking. Have there ever been any confirmed cases of a feral human being found in the wild? Well, per usual, I did some digging. And per usual... I didn't like the information that I found. At first, this looks like some kind of strange hoax. Ukrainian girl, Oksana Malaya, running, jumping, eating and barking, just like a dog. But this is no fraud. Oksana's behaviour is the result of the most cruel childhood neglect. Neglect that began when she was three. Mum had too many kids. We didn't have enough beds, so I called to the dog and started living with her. Her parents were alcoholics, and one night, too drunk to care, they left their infant daughter outside in the cold. Looking for warmth, Oksana crawled into the farm kennel. Curling up with the mongrel dogs probably saved her life. I would talk to them. They would bark, and I would repeat it. That was our way of communication. For the next six years, from the age of three to eight, the kennel was Oksana's home and the dogs her family. And when finally discovered, it was obvious there'd been catastrophic consequences for Oksana's development. She was more like a little dog than a human child. She used to show her tongue when she saw water. And she used to eat with her tongue and not her hands. Could you even imagine? Now I learned through my research that Oxana is still with the assisted living program and continues to acclimate. No word on how the war over there has affected her. We can only hope that everything's okay. And if you're curious, Oxana's is not the only instance where this Mowgli or Tarzan-esque scenario plays out. I've linked to a video describing nine other instances of feral people being found. And just a warning, most of those cases don't pan out as well as Oxana's. But there it is. Wild people in the flesh. Just like Alex said. Thanks again, Alex, for taking the time to share that interesting story. Because that's going to do it for this episode. But before I roll the credits, 
I'd like to take a hot second to thank each and every one of you for buying merchandise, calling in, spreading the word, visiting our sponsors, and above all else, tuning in to the show. We are forever grateful. But if you don't mind us striving for greatness, please do us a favor over the break and take time to share the program with fellow weirdos. If we get a big enough audience, we might be able to do more than one episode a week. But baby steps. we got to get there first. So again, a huge thank you. We will catch you guys all back here at the beginning of Season 14. And now, if you don't mind. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All media used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. Please find us on social media. We have accounts at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And while you're at it, please give us a like and subscribe over at YouTube. And finally, the terrifying score you heard this evening was Co.AG Music, Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse, and Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Thank you so much for listening. Stay spooky out there. Until next time. Tonight's secret entry comes to us from John, over in North Carolina. Good afternoon, my name is John. I'm from Jacksonville, North Carolina. I just wanted to share a local legend from my area of Eastern North Carolina that is no longer around, but made national fame all the way back to the 1920s up until 1977 when it was no longer seen. And that is the Mako Light, which was a ghost light located just to the west of Wilmington, North Carolina, in the unincorporated town of Mako Station, along a former railroad, the Wilmington and Manchester, and later the Atlantic Coastline Railroad that used to run from Wilmington all the way down to South Carolina. So the story behind the legend goes that back in 1877, along the railroad line, on a stormy night in February, A train was heading from South Carolina to Wilmington when it made a stop at Mako Station. Sometime along the way, the rear caboose of the train came loose, and the conductor in the train, a man by the name of Joe Baldwin, was in that caboose at the time. And Joe woke to the shutter of the caboose coming uncoupled and realized that he was in trouble, as he knew the train schedule was working for the railroad and knew that there was a manifest freight coming quickly behind them. So Joe jumped out of the caboose with his lantern and tried as hard as he could to warn the oncoming train that there was an obstruction in the line and to slow down. But by the time he got out of the train and the conductor on the engine saw him, it was already too late. The train collided with the caboose and Joe's body was found headless with his lantern still in his hand. Since that time back in the 1870s, 
it's reported that nightly Joe Baldwin's ghost would go walking along the railroad line looking for his missing head. Now, the history behind it, there is some substance to it. A man who worked for the railroad by the name of Charles Baldwin was actually killed in an incident similar to this in 1857, so roughly 20 years before. But the light itself was so frequent along the railroad line all the way up until 1977 when the Atlantic coastline ripped up the tracks because they no longer needed the line that the railroad itself actually published an order that trains were not to stop for white light along the line and conductors and engineers on the rail line were ordered to use red and blue and green lanterns exclusively for signaling purposes. Um, the light itself, like I said, was seen very frequently by locals and it's even reported that uh, presidents who were traveling to Wilmington stopped there just to see the legend. In particular, one president, I believe it was Grover Cleveland, actually stopped there because he was so intrigued by the legend. So it made fame for a long time. It's no longer seen, but it has such a local lore about it that streets in the area are actually still named Joe Baldwin Drive. I just thought it was a really cool legend and wanted to share it with y'all. Hopefully it makes the Local Legend podcast. Really big fan of the show. Love the work you guys do. Keep it up and keep it spooky. The make-o-light, the make-o-light, shining bright in the darkest night. The make-o-light, the make-o-light, shining bright in the darkest night. In the darkest night. In the state of North Carolina near the city of Wilmington, there's a place called Mako Station. That's where this story was begun. In 1867, they say a locomotive engineer whose name was Joe Baldwin died. Thank you, John. See, I told you there was a song for most of these. That one is Grant Turner's take from back in 1965. And I've also linked over in the show notes to a fun little article about other covers of the tune. If you like music and spook lights, be sure to check it out. But now I ask that you buckle up, because not only is this ride not over, but it's about to get even spookier. We're going beyond. Now for those that aren't aware, all you have to do is jump over to patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us podcast. Once you've joined that $5 level, you get access to this Beyond episode and some 50 plus others. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Monsters Among Us podcast, or simply do a search and join. And to kick off this extended Hometown Legend Beyond episode is an anonymous caller from the land of Lincoln. Hey, Derek. I'm originally from the state of Illinois and grew up in Chicago, actually. This is where your hometown stories...